Luke chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry. The words will appear on the, on the screen behind me. In 44 BC, 18-year-old Octavius received some astonishing news. His great uncle, Julius Caesar, had just adjusted his will prior to his assassination. And much to the surprise of everybody, friend and foe, it named Octavius as his heir. And in an instant, Octavius was catapulted from uh, absolute obscurity into extreme power and extreme wealth. And after years of civil war and smart and deft political maneuvering, he became the first emperor of Rome. A single piece of good news had transformed a nobody into the ruler of the world. And he quickly gave himself the name Caesar Augustus and began a propaganda campaign to tell the world that what happened to him was good news for them too. And this propaganda campaign was centered around uh, two key Greek words, one meaning savior and one meaning gospel or good news. Historians uh, found um, an, an inscription that was written in 9 BC to celebrate Octavius or Augustus Caesar's birthday. Listen to what it says. Providence has set things in perfect order by giving us Augustus and by sending him as savior, there's that first word, for us and for our descendants that he might end war and make all things beautiful. Since by his appearing, Caesar has exceeded the hopes of all who awaited for this good news. The birthday of the God Augustus marks the start of the good news about him and about the world. He single-handedly ushered in a 200-year period of peace and prosperity for the Roman Empire, which historians would later call the Pax Romana. And Augustus, therefore, was hailed as, by Romans as a god. He was their savior king. He celebrated this uh, reality by minting coins with his image on it, along with the words, son of God or son of the divine. Now, I say all that because it helps us to know the context in which Theophilus, who was the original recipient of Luke's gospel, the context in which he was reading the words that we are about to read. At that time, Rome was saturated with propaganda about Augustus. Now, Luke chooses to pinpoint the birth of Jesus and make it very particular to a point and a moment in history. We're going to start in Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days... Caesar Augustus issued a decree that the census would be taken of the entire Roman world. This was midway in, in Augustus's reign. And so in verse 4, it tells us, Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. Now, for most of us sitting here this morning, reminding us of the, the, the fact that Jesus' birth was, happened at a particular time and a particular place in history might seem unnecessary. But Luke was doing it intentionally because he didn't want anyone to think that the birth of Jesus was a legend or a fairy tale or a folk tale that had some sort of moral to the story. The Christmas story doesn't begin with once upon a time 
or a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. No, this is that what Luke is telling Theophilus, what Luke is telling us is this. Remember the year that Augustus called that census? Well, I want to tell you something else that happened at that particular time. There was, uh, this was the same year that Jesus was born to a virgin teenage girl in a stable in Bethlehem. And so Joseph and Mary started to, they had to make the uh, nearly 100-mile journey uh, all the way from Nazareth to Galilee, uh, to all, the way to, all the way to Bethlehem. And by the, by the time they arrived, Mary was in labor. But there was nowhere for them to stay because of all the people that had traveled to Bethlehem because of the census. And so, as we know, Mary is forced to give birth to Jesus in a stable in one of the inns. And she uses a feeding trough as a makeshift crib. Verse 6, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Our introduction to Jesus is not very impressive, is it? And it's in stark contrast to what we know of Augustus Caesar. Augustus was the emperor of the world's most powerful nation. And Jesus was, at this time, just a baby, lying cold in an animal feeding trough. Augustus was known around the world, while Jesus, for all intents and purposes, was anonymous. Augustus was born a Roman citizen, and as Julius Caesar's adopted son, lived in some of the most lavish palaces in the world, while Jesus was born a Jew, in Bethlehem, the small unwalled village on the edges of the Roman Empire to homeless, unwed parents. But Luke has news for Theophilus. Luke has news for the Roman world and the Roman Empire. Luke has, has news for us about the world's true Savior King. What happened in that stable was far better news than Augustus's birth. And the good news about the true Savior King was beginning to break out. In verse 8, it says, there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid, because I bring you good news. There's that word again. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Back then, the Roman world were running around trying to impress the emperor who had called for a census. And, and this is where what we have learned so far suddenly becomes more than just a, a history lesson. I would put it to you that nothing much has changed. The world is still rushing around, not trying to impress an emperor, but trying to impress pseudo or pretend savior kings, someone or something that we look to to give us hope or to reassure us of confidence or to be our source of joy. Let me ask you this this morning, where or in what or in whom do you find joy? 
Are you rushing around from experience to experience, from event to event, running here, there, and everywhere, searching for meaning and joy that you haven't yet found? And friends, if you live in the city, you know that city living only exacerbates that. John chapter 17 tells us something altogether different. Jesus promises to those who follow him will be full, they will receive the full measure of joy. Joy complete and joy made perfect. Let me ask you this, where or what or in whom do you place your confidence? Letitia Wright is the actress who played Black Panther's sister. And I was gonna break the, the story of what happened in the second Black Panther, but I won't. But you need to go and watch it to make sure uh, that, that you get the updated news. But Letitia Wright was, was, was asked in an interview about uh, her, her acting career, and she said this. She said, I needed to break, take a break from acting because I idolized it. And so I left it and went on a journey to discover God and my relationship with Him, and I became a Christian. He gave me such joy and light within myself, I felt secure, like I didn't need validation from anyone else, from my career or for getting a part. My happiness wasn't dependent on that at all. It was dependent on my relationship with Jesus. And the interviewer kind of jumps in and he says, yes, because as an actress, you are judged all the time by producers and by the public. And, and she replies, yes, and social media. But I'm focused, listen to this, I'm focused on who I am in Jesus. I'm not perfect, but I'm walking every day, staying connected to him. Friends, every single one of us here, whether we are followers of Jesus or not, constantly face the question of where we are gonna place our confidence. For Letitia Wright, it, it, the, the temptation was to place her confidence in acting. For the Apostle Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament, his temptation was to place his confidence into, in his religious pedigree. For me, I've been tempted to, to place my confidence in leading a successful church, whatever that means, so that I can be validated by friends. For Debs and I as a couple, there have been times where we've been tempted to place our confidence in always being there for our children so that they would be safe. For you, it might be money or maybe relationships, or maybe your career, or, or maybe education. We can either put our confidence in Jesus, or we can put our confidence in something or someone else, but we can't do both. Good things, that list that I just read, a lot of those things are good things, but good things become ultimate things when we place our confidence in them. And friends, let me tell you this, ultimate things will ultimately destroy us. Jesus is the only one who knows how to live in the center of our lives. A hymn written in the early 1800s says it best, on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. What about hope? Where do you place your hope? Well, let me ask you this. What do you daydream about? What do you long for more than anything else? What, what is the future that you anticipate that gives meaning and purpose to the, to the, and, and drives the decisions you make? I'm, I'm ba basically asking, what for you, what, where is the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow for you? I, I came across this quote. I don't know who said it, but the, the, this person said this. When I hear somebody has bought their dream house, I'm really sad that their dream was as small as a house. <laughs> Listen to Paul's dream. 
Listen to Paul's desire, Paul's hope in Philippians chapter three. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. And if need be, I wanna suffer with him, sharing in his death so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. Friends, if we are to, to follow Jesus, it means that we dream or hope less for a house now and more for our father's house in eternity. It means that we dream or less for treasures on earth that will spoil and fade and more for the inheritance that is kept for us by our Father in heaven that will never spoil or fade. And we dream and hope less for retirement for those 25 or 30 years at the end of our life and more for the resurrection life that we will enjoy for eternity in Jesus Christ. We are all looking to something or to someone to place our hope in or to find confidence from or to be our source of joy. The question is, do we find that in pretend savior kings or in Jesus Christ? As the angel said, is, is the good news that will cause great joy for all people. About 30 years after Jesus's birth, he took his disciples on a ministry trip into the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And the question has to be asked, why did Jesus choose Caesarea Philippi as the place for this particular ministry trip? Because if you study about Caesarea Philippi, essentially it was this incredibly pagan city that was worshiping pagan gods. It would have been like a strip mall of temple after temple to gods after gods. And at the center of this kind of this strip mall of temples was this new temple that was built by Herod who at the time was the governor of Galilee. And he had built this temple in honor of Rome's savior king. It's the exact same Caesar Augustus that we had learned about at the beginning of this sermon. Jesus had brought his disciples to Caesar's city to reveal to them what the angels proclaimed at his birth, that he is the true savior king the true son of God and the savior of the world. And so what Jesus does is he begins to quiz his disciples. He says to them, who do, you, who do others say that I am? Anything but the true savior king is essentially the answer that the disciples brought. And so Jesus doubles down with his disciples and he says, what about you? Who do you say I am? And, and from, by revelation from God, Peter says, you are the Messiah. And so Jesus begins to unpack that a little bit. And in, and in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, it kind of picks up on, on the story. It says this, he, Jesus, then began to teach them that the Son of Man, now let me just pause there for a moment, because that title that Jesus uses to, des to describe himself is a very important title. The Son of Man essentially means he's, he's one of us. But in Daniel chapter 7, there is a prophetic uh, uh, image, a prophetic picture that describes the Son of Man as one who is an all-conquering king, who is given all authority and all glory and all power by God and, and comes to, to make everything right. That's Jesus. Verse 31, he, he then begin, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. 
This is the first time that the disciples are hearing that the Son of Man, this, 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 this all-conquering king, must suffer and must die. Never before. And this is, this is the key to, to understand. Never before had the Son of Man directly been linked with the Son of Suffering. With passages like Isaiah chapter, three, Isaiah chapter 53, which tell us that Jesus is despised and rejected, that he is familiar with pain, that he would be pierced for our sins, crushed for our iniquities, and oppressed and afflicted. There are, right here, there are two contrasting images or pictures of Jesus, the, the all-conquering king and a man of suffering. Now, I said it had never been directly linked before, but it had been hinted at. It had been hinted at at the Christmas story, at Jesus' birth. You see, friends, we sentimentalize Jesus' birth, don't we? Every single picture we see of Jesus' birth has a cow with a big smile on his face and chubby little cherub-like characters all gathered around a mom and a pop who are content and happy. But Jesus' birth was brutal. Mary and Joseph were, were, were homeless. They had no money. They had nowhere to stay. And, and they were cast aside by, by, the, by the innkeepers and eventually found a stable where, where, where Jesus was born. Have you ever been into a, a stable? I mean, the smell is overwhelming. And Jesus was, was laying in a trough that that's mostly is filled with slop to feed the animals. The point I'm trying to make, friends, is Jesus... The Son of Man was and, and still is rejected because of his humility, because of his simplicity, because of the simplicity of how he came, how he came just as one of us. Even though Jesus is the all-conquering king, given authority and glory and power at Christmas, he didn't come as a military general. He didn't come to take up a throne in, in a palace in power. Instead, he came just as we are. Weak and rejected and despised and oppressed. Friends, if Jesus came at Christmas to annihilate all evil, if he came at Christmas as a conquering king to destroy all evil, none of us would be left. And if you think I'm being harsh, then I would put it to you, you don't know the condition of your heart. Friends, instead, Jesus came at Christmas to be rejected, not accepted. He came eventually to be crucified, not to be crowned. He, he came not to, not to judge, but to be judged. He took upon himself our rejection, our sin, our judgment, all of that that we deserved so that one day he can return as an all-conquering king to end all evil without ending any of us. That's why Jesus is the true Savior King. He carries on in verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples. And, and he said, this was an open invitation to, to everyone. Come as you are, but come prepared and ready to die. Whoever wants to be my disciple, whoever wants to follow me is what Jesus is saying, must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. If you've seen the movie A Few Good Men, that, that kind of incredible courtroom scene with with, with Tom Cruise, where he's cross-examining Jack Nicholson, who is, a, who is a military general. 
And, and, and Tom Cruise asks the question, were soldiers in grave danger? To which uh, uh, the general, you know, Jack Nicholson replies, is there any other kind? Jesus is saying here, to, to follow him requires complete surrender. And you might be saying, complete surrender? And I suspect Jesus would say, is there any other kind? The cross, friends, is a symbol of death. The cross is a, is a, is a symbol of death to self and death to our rights and death to our time and, and our wants and our finances and to everything that we place our confidence in. To which the question has to be asked, why on earth would anyone want to follow Jesus? Well, he gives us the answer. Verse 35, whoever, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But for whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? In, in, at the time, one's life or one's soul was, was, was kind of the, the seat of being, the very source of identity, one's desires and affections and aversions. It was, it was one's identity. And verse 36 asks, Jesus asks, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet to forfeit their soul, to give up their, their existence and their very identity? Jesus is saying, friends, don't build your identity. Don't look for your true self in, in gaining the whole world, in, in things that you achieve, or what, or, or who you know, or, or what, or who you've conquered. It might not literally be the whole world, but if your entire life is wrapped up in what you're going after, then it is the whole world. Jesus says, instead, build your life on me. Build your life on the gospel, on the fact of my death and my resurrection, in the fact that I am the true Savior King. That's where your identity lies. That's where you will find your true self and the fullness of life. Friends, I would put it to you today that the Christmas message and the cross are exactly the same. It's not an easy message. Jesus is telling us that, that I am the king, but I'm not the king that you expected. I am the true savior king who was born into obscurity and then went on to die on the cross. And if you want to follow me, you will have to die too. Friends, I understand this is a hard message, but it's not a heavy message because it is the gospel. It, it, it is good news because on the other side of death is resurrection. On the other side of Jesus' death is him being raised from the grave. On the other side of us laying down our lives is, is our lives being raised up to live as we are created to live. Every single other religion that I know of, every single other religious leader or, or great figure or profound teaching teaches or shows us how to save ourselves. Friends, Jesus did not come to show us how to save ourselves. He stepped into the world to save us from ourselves, to pay the penalty for our sins. At Christmas, he came weak and rejected. On the cross, he was, he was killed and seemingly defeated, but ultimately he rose from the dead and eventually he will return as the all-conquering king to defeat evil and death and sin once and for all, Jesus is our true Savior King. Can we close our eyes for a moment? 
I'd love to just give us a, 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 a chance, an opportunity just to respond in our hearts to the truth of the gospel today. I suspect most of you here are followers of Jesus already, but, but I would be amiss if I, if I didn't give an opportunity to, to, to have some of you perhaps respond to the gospel today. Romans chapter 1 verse 18 says that, the, that the, the, the good news, the gospel, is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. The reason why the gospel is the power of God is because it is able to save everyone as we put our faith in who Jesus is and what he has done on the cross. You might not understand it all. You might not have an answer for every single question that might be running in your head or your heart right now. But if there is there a sense in your heart that the Father is calling you to himself through faith in his Son, faith in Jesus and what he has done on the cross, it would be my privilege to lead you in a prayer right now where you can surrender your heart to Jesus and have him come into your life as Lord and Savior. Where you die to self, but you are raised again into eternal life by faith in Jesus. If that's you today, don't you wanna just raise your hand? I'd love to lead you in a prayer today where you respond to the gospel and say, Steve, would you pray with, pray with me? I'm not gonna call you up front, but I would love to pray for you right where you are seated. Does anyone wanna respond today to the gospel? Just lift your hand real quick. I'd love to pray for you this morning. Lead you in a prayer, surrendering your heart to Jesus. Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you, Jesus, that you stepped into the world and that you, you stepped into the world to, to enable us by faith in you to be reunited once again to our heavenly Father. I pray that today, as we go from this place in a few moments, I pray that we would remember the reason of Christmas. Yes, it's an opportunity to be with family and to exchange gifts, but Lord, may we always treasure the truth of you stepping into the world and changing our lives forever. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.